The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. If you would please take your copy of God's Word and turn to Exodus chapter 20. Studying the Ten Commandments has impacted me and and many of you who have told me how good it's been for your soul to look at these familiar truths. And my prayer today is that this is going to continue to change us and change how we view God's law as his good gift for us. And to be reminded that it goes deeper than the physical and external idols or murder physically or cussing using his name. It is internal. It's spiritual. We've seen it's the idols of the heart. It includes hate and anger and hypocritical living is one of the ways we can take his name in vain. Exodus 20 verse 14 now takes us to the seventh commandment. It says this, you shall not commit adultery. I also want to read verse 17. The Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And it goes on from there, but even as we look at verse 14, we need to understand the Ten Commandments include the heart, and and they're going to culminate with the, the heart. We're not to covet what is not ours. It's not just about not committing sexual sin with another. You're not to covet the spouse of another. And that's the heart of lust, coveting, seeing, or being intimate with someone who is not your marriage partner. And that's the the context of this chapter here. It's not just the outward deeds, as we've seen in this series. It's also the inward desires. It's not just the physical acts that the Ten Commandments are speaking to. It's the, in this case, the, the visual desires as well. So even if literal adultery isn't something you've committed or are presently tempted to, don't relax because spiritual adultery is also what the Old Testament speaks of. About 33% of the time it uses this term, and when we understand spiritual adultery, this is something we can and I think have been guilty of. And this is a call to purity in every aspect of life, and this applies to every age and stage of life when you understand it. The Decalogue means the ten... Words, deca, ten, logs, logos, words. And th- this is the seventh word now. And our title is God's Word for Purity and Marital Fidelity. This is about purity and marital fidelity. And we're going to look at this in two parts the law's foundation for marital fidelity, and then the gospel's applications for purity. So the law's foundations for marital fidelity, and then the gospel applications to pursuing purity. But verse 5 is against marital infidelity negatively. But I think we need to start how the Bible starts, and this is how our service starts, with what God is for. And that was our scripture reading from Genesis chapter 2 earlier, the positive foundation for fidelity or faithfulness. That word fidelity means... Faithfulness, 
And even as I give this message here, I'm reminded that we have, we have many examples here. I'm giving this message from the Word, but many of you have been giving a message to the world of your own marriages. And I was just reflecting on the living sermons of faithfulness we have in our midst. Just in the last few weeks, we've celebrated multiple couples celebrating an anniversary of over 60 years. The, the Wardens and the D. Waters, the Murrays and the Myers. And in the past, we've had a number of others that were over 60 years. The Kundals, the Hales, the Owens, the Jones, the Stelzmillers, the Carpenters. I think the Christiansons got to 69 years, even as they were homebound. And this week, Bill Hunkapiller with his wife Betty, he was here for a number of years. He's now at Ponte. On Wednesday of this week, they're going to celebrate 70 years of marriage. But I've, I've verified this morning there's someone who... Uh, it was a part of our church not that long ago who has the record of the total number of years being married to someone, and that was the late Don Schwarzberg. Joanne's um, husband was married in his first marriage for 60 years, and then he was married to Joanne for 16 years. Did I get that right? So 60 plus 16, if my math is right, that's 76 years. He's now in glory, but what a glory that is. What a, what a blessing that is. And even to to think about many couples here in our church now, married 50-plus years, I think there's about 12 on any given Sunday. There's many here who have been, in my my 17 years here, I think there's been seven that have reached 68 years of marriage. I don't know if there's records for for churches our size, but our church is unusually blessed by God. What a blessing that is, not only to have so many at that age and stage of life and that longevity of marriage, but also to have so many young people, to have so many young couples, so many little ones around here. This is, a, this is a blessing that many churches do not see, and many people in the world never see or know of, of anyone who's been married that long, and we've seen so many. This is a blessing. I want to say to young people and young couples, get around some of these older couples. Do you guys want me to use this mic? Are we doing all right? Um, I'll, I'll pull it up in case we need it. Uh, spend time with some older couples and, and older people. This is a, a blessing that we have. They've learned a few things for those many years. And great is God's faithfulness in our midst. Amen. And we also need to recognize our God has been faithful to help people forgive and faithfully stay together despite significant sin. But we need to start with the Bible's foundation for fidelity, and it's covenant love. It's God's faithful love, his covenant love, which is reflected through his people. And that's how the Ten Commandments start with these covenant terms, I am the Lord your God. This is not a legalistic restricting of sexual freedom here. If you look at verse 2, really what he's doing is this is a a loving, redeeming from slavery to freedom. And and the freedom includes from sexual bondage, which had been the context they came out of. And verse 12 says, God is giving them a land. That's the land of of Canaan. It, It was a land that was captive to pagan immorality. 
And I want you to go to Leviticus 18. So Exodus and then Leviticus is the next book, chapter 18. Because God had delivered them from Egypt and the slavery there, but he also wants to deliver them from enslaving sin that would tempt them in the future. And Leviticus 18 is going to give more context in in how it relates to God's covenant relationship as their God. And really, Leviticus to Deuteronomy in many ways are applying the Ten Commandments as categories that then all those different laws fall under. But look at Leviticus 18.1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. So there's that covenant relationship formula. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. And so he's, he's speaking with his covenant formula and his covenant name, Yahweh, in the Hebrew. Literally, I am Yahweh, your God. We have this relationship. And then verse 16, here's some examples of what should be true of those in that relationship. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. And verse 20, and you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife. And so make yourself unclean with her. Verse 22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. He's speaking to to men here. Don't lie with other men as you would with a woman. It is an abomination. And then verse 30, so keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. There's that covenant formula again. I am the Lord your God. This is how you are to be in light of that. It's his covenant relationship and faithfulness that is calling for them, for their fidelity, to reflect who he is. And some of the practices that were acceptable in Canaan or in our nation are abominable to our covenant God. And this is in this chapter, being addressed to men, but it applies to women. And certainly the language of uncovering nakedness applies to modern ways and technology that that can take place as well. But his or her body belongs only to a covenant partner in marriage or, or a future spouse. If the person's single now, that still can violate that that's someone else's spouse in the future. And this language of body or even a brother's wife is is echoed by Paul I think in 1 Thessalonians 4 he says we're called to be holy to abstain from sexual immorality and to control our own body our own, our own vessel in sanctification and honor and he says let no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter says we're not to live in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Those Gentiles that do not have a covenant relationship with God. We're to be different. We're to live differently than them. And this language of family, even brother and sister, Paul, when he tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, he says you need to relate to, you need to see and treat young women as your sister with all purity. Treat them as your sister. If you're not yet married to them, you need to see them and treat them as you would your sister with all purity. And I was reminded just this morning of when, when David was sinfully looking at 
a woman who was bathing, one of them said to him in 2 Samuel 11, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah? I think he's trying to speak some sense into David. This, this one you're looking to and, and inquiring about, this is, this is someone's daughter. This is someone's husband. We need to think in those terms of, of our own daughters. How would we want someone to treat them, to speak of them, to, to look to them? This is someone's daughter and someone's, if not married now, the spouse of someone in the future. God's covenant people need to be different than the world. And Exodus, in some ways, was God's marriage covenant with Israel. Listen to how the prophet Jeremiah describes it in Jeremiah 31, 32. He says, there was a covenant that I made with Israel's fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, although I was their husband, declares the Lord. And so we have the language of the Lord himself as not only a covenant God, but he, his relationship with his people and what he's doing, bringing them out of Egypt, is as a husband, taking them by the hand, a, a covenant. And it was a covenant that, sadly, they broke towards their relationship with Yahweh. That's the foundation. That's the framework of, of fidelity. It's founded on God's covenant love as a husband to his people. This is so important because our covenant love is to reflect God's love in that way. God's covenant love. And adultery breaks covenant with the one who took you by the hand as husband and wife. And this is the one sexual sin in the Ten Commandments. Certainly there's others that are listed later in Scripture. But the Ten Commandments were the book of the covenant And because it's breaking or violating the covenant of marriage, not necessarily irreparably, but it it assaults the very covenant of marriage and the picture of God's relationship with his people that is most serious. And so there was the death penalty applied to this and not to other sexual sins. Premarital relations, for example, also could have a great, did have a great cost in the law, but you could live, and there's even Levit- Exodus and Leviticus will talk about that. But adultery is sexual sin in the, in the technical definition by a married person that is breaking a covenant. And it often, sadly, tragically breaks a family. And I know families here have been impacted by that. But we need to start where we started this service. Because before Moses wrote Exodus, he wrote Genesis. And that's why I had us read earlier Genesis 2, where there's one man and one woman. And God brings them together to be one flesh for one lifetime. That's a biblical covenant formula there in Genesis 2. It's, it's, it's a formula of math where one plus one equals one. This is the one time where one plus one equals one in God's eyes, bone of bone, flesh of flesh, that's covenant language for leaving and cleaving and then weaving those two lives together as one. And that's the foundational passage for marriage as a covenant. There's no other flesh that can be in that union. It's a deeper union than father and mother. You leave father and mother and join in this union. And so think of when that's torn apart in God's eyes, that is 
shredding apart one flesh. God didn't create Adam and Eve and Trevor, in case Adam didn't work out. God didn't make Tina for Adam and Eve, and a third person, for Adam to look at in the way he was only to look at his wife, or for polygamy. There wasn't an option for those in God's original design. God did not make two men to marry. God did not make two women to marry. God created one man and one woman and intended them to be one flesh for one lifetime. That's Genesis 2. But, of course, we live in a Genesis 3 world where sin comes in. And Jesus acknowledges hard-hearted, even though the beginning it was not to be that way, there is hard-hearted infidelity that can end marriage. And Paul acknowledges there are times when an unbeliever abandons the covenant with a believer. But Jesus, where those things haven't taken place, Jesus warns in Matthew 5.32 about wrong divorcing and then remarrying actually is committing adultery. And the foundational passage and reason that a man leaves father and mother and is joined to one wife is this one flesh union, this intimate, it's for companionship, it's not good to be alone. And the relationship there is described as they were naked and unashamed. This is God's wedding gift. Sex is God's wedding gift. God is not against sex between married people. He is for it in that context, for the joys of of intimacy. Listen to Proverbs 5:18. Rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord. The Lord sees all a man's ways and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. Proverbs 5-7 through 7 is the most extended commentary on this. This is a short verse in Exodus, but Proverbs 5-7 through 7 really unpacks it. And right before that, at the end of Proverbs 4, it says this, Above all else, guard your hearts. Guard your hearts. Even in the Old Testament, that was the key issue. It's from the heart that everything from life flows. And then he, he tells him, guard your, the paths of your feet. Don't, don't turn your eyes to the right or to the left. Let your eyes be straight before you. And the language there, being held fast in the cords of sin, tells us that this kind of sin is, is particularly ensnaring and enslaving. And enticing. And so he says, don't swerve off the path. Guard your path from temptation. Stay far away from its door, Proverbs 5 says. Don't go near the door. Only the body of your spouse is to be rejoiced in like that. And God sees what you see. And the Bible doesn't blush to celebrate marital sex, but outside of marriage... It's drunk driving would be the language of being intoxicated by that that can take your life. Adultery kills, even spiritually, but the commandment gives life. And it's not just about physical acts. Listen to Proverbs 6.23. The commandment is a lamp and a teaching a light. I think he's talking about this commandment in the context. It's to preserve you from the adulteress. So the command 
that commandment, the seventh commandment, is to preserve from the adulteress. And he says, do not desire your beauty in her heart. Don't even desire in your heart what's not right. Verse 27, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes and not be burned? Many of you have wood-burning stoves and you can't carry the fire. You don't carry the, the coals outside next to your clothes. There's permanent damage that can come from this. It burns and destroys. And it starts in the heart. And the seventh commandment is a lamp to guard your heart and your eyes from playing with fire. Beware of images that can burn in your memory. They can't be erased. They can sear your conscience. Proverbs 7.25, do not let your heart, again, it's the heart, don't let your heart even turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. Her house is the way to hell. Sounds serious. It also sounds like Jesus talking about how this kind of sin, even in the heart, can send to hell. Jesus knew the Old Testament. Don't desire her beauty in your heart. Don't let your heart turn toward the highway to hell. Stay as far. Don't ask how close you can get and still be okay. Say, how far can I stay away? How pure can I be? And it's not just the physically committing sin. Again, it is the mentally coveting it. It can be a glance. It turns to a gaze. And it's not just about beauty distracting you. There's a a normal sense of, of noticing beauty that God's created, but it's when you then continue to look and you desire it as yours. Desire to, to see or even mentally dwell there. The world says, follow your heart. How many of you heard people say that? Follow your heart. You know what the Bible says? Don't follow your heart. Here's how command number seven is applied in the law. Numbers 15, 39. Remember all the commandments of Yahweh so as to do them and to not follow after your own heart and your own eyes after which you played the harlot. Be holy to your God. I am Yahweh your God. That's Numbers 15, 39. Don't follow your heart and don't follow your eyes. And playing the harlot. That's in the law. The commandments are to keep you from following your heart. You need to follow the Lord. Don't follow lustful eyes. Don't don't follow your heart in following clicks on the screen. Don't play the harlot by playing videos that are inappropriate. Moses understood, the, the Moses who wrote Exodus 20 understood adultery and harlotry to include the internal and the visual. Even if you're both unmarried, that's someone's future spouse that you're not to covet. There's some who would never go to prostitutes, but who will go there in pictures in private, but God sees. Playing the harlot can be a mental playlist. It can also be dressing immodestly to draw lust as a harlot would. I think a wife may be tempted in in different ways sometimes, to long after a husband who meets an emotional need that she has. If you even have this thought in your mind, I just wish I had a spouse who, and then you fill in the blank, you can be coveting 
someone else's spouse. And there's a certain degree where there's, we always want to, to be growing as husbands and wives, and we can let desires be known to our spouses. But when you're, you're coveting, especially if there's a, a fantasy or there's some envisioned uh, spouse, maybe it's just, I wish, wish I had a spouse who cared, who listened, who appreciated, who made me feel, and you fill in the blank. Be very careful that you're not coveting someone else's spouse or even desiring in your heart maybe fantasy from a novel or some British movie. I don't know, some guy with an accent, and you just, you just think, boy, I don't, know. I don't know what it might be, but be careful to not seek emotional support outside of a marriage covenant. This can happen with friends, work, can happen online, but beware of intimacy, even in conversation and companionship outside of that covenant commitment. Here's how Proverbs 2.17 describes adultery. An adulterous wife forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. Malachi 2.14 says, To an unfaithful husband, the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. And then the prophet says, did he not make them one? He's he's quoting from Moses from the law. He made them one. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Because God's law says that in In Genesis 2, God makes husband and wife one flesh. Keep your covenant vows. God was witness to your vows to forsake all others and be faithful to him. To be faithless kills your witness. You are to be one flesh. To be companions for life. So guard yourself in your spirit from a covenant breaking. Or even imagining that. So turn now to Matthew 19. That's the law's foundation of marital fidelity. But we need, number two, some gospel applications for purity. Paul actually quotes what we read in our scripture reading from Genesis. As a man being joined to his wife as one flesh, as being about the gospel. Ephesians 5 is where Paul says what Moses wrote in the law about marriage that he quotes there is actually about Christ and his church. This is why this is so important. The reality of covenant love, and this is already alluded to in that Jeremiah passage, but it's pointing to the Lord's love for his people, or for us as Christians, for Christ's love for the church, for his bride. That's why it's so important to be faithful as husbands, to love your wives as Christ loves us, to present us as pure and without blemish. That's why a bride is to seek to be blameless in this arena as a witness to the world of the gospel. Ephesians 5 says this, live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And then his gospel application is this, but among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. Or it must not be named among you or any kind of impurity or coarse joking. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. Be very careful then how you live. So Paul's quoting from the Law of Moses to, to, to end that section there. 
in chapter 5 of Ephesians, but he first applies it at the start of the chapter to a hint of any sin. It includes joking about it or laughing about it. We need to be careful that we're not desensitized to this and, and laughing at what the Lord hates. We're not to be engaged in or entertained by sin that put our Lord on the cross. I think we need to be careful there, more careful. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19, if you're there, in verse 5, Jesus also quotes from the law. Matthew 19, 5, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And then verse 9, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. In other words, there's one flesh, and now they've gone and found another partner, even if they're legally married. That's not right because of this infidelity. And he, he does say it can put asunder that one flesh. But to divorce and remarry wrongly is is sin. There is another passage that Paul addresses this where an unbeliever divorces you as a believer as another grounds in 1 Corinthians 7, but there's times where that covenant is irreparably broken and the divorcing party innocent of sexual sin can remarry and the context of that when you understand the Old Testament is adulterers were executed. So if you committed adultery, you were executed, and then your spouse would be free and would be able to continue on their life with another marriage partner. The New Testament doesn't call for execution, and as Jesus says this, they were under Roman law. You remember when they were going to kill Jesus, they had to have the Romans execute him on imperial charges. But God's, how God views this sin has not changed. Adultery can still kill a marriage and can free the innocent party. And we're not under the Old Testament government as the church. Adulterers can live. But Jesus is also saying their ex doesn't have to live single. And we also need to understand Jesus taught about grace. He taught about forgiveness. And I think his ideal to, to work towards is even after adultery with repentance, there can be restoration. And, and I know families that have been restored even from this Serious sin. The New Testament has grace for adulterers and those who would divorce one. But whatever sexual or marital failing in your past, know that there is grace from this day forward to be faithful. There's many things in our lives that we can regret from the past. And this message is not to heap more guilt on you, but it is to have us all resolve from this day forward in the state that I am. I want to be faithful to what God would call me to. And the the good news of the gospel is it doesn't just sweep sin under the rug like it's okay. It doesn't sweep it under the rug. It, It nails sin to a cross. It nails sin to the cross where it is paid in full for all who repent and believe. That when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us, to, to purify us. Remember, Jesus did not stone the woman who was caught in adultery. But he says to her and he says to, his, to us, go and from now on sin no more. 
So from now on, even as the, the light of the truth comes to us from this day forward, we need to resolve in light of our gracious Savior that we're going to not sin. And, and here in Matthew 19, verse 18, the, there's a man who, who asked Jesus which of the commandments he must keep. Verse 18, he, he said to him, this young man, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. And then he goes through more of the Ten Commandments in order, actually. And, and the guy basically claims, yeah, I've, I've done that. I've kept all that since I was a youth. And this is right after. We, we saw this a few weeks ago. Jesus said to him, you're asking about what good things you need to do. There's only one person who's good, and that's God. But basically, this guy raises his hand and says, yeah, and me too. I'm, I'm good. I know you said only God's good, but I'm good too. I'm all good on all those commandments. We need to go back to chapter 15 for the heart of the problem, and actually the problem in this young man's heart, because he was actually, I think, 0 for 10 if he really understood the heart of God's law. Look at Matthew 15, verse 19. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, those are the same Ten Commandments in the same order from chapter 19, and he actually joins adultery to immorality, I think, to, to show that it's, it's right to understand not just if you're technically married, but immorality in general is, is tied to this commandment. And it's, it's really, he says it's a heart issue. All of that starts in the heart. It all comes out of the heart. It's not to say the act is the same as, as the, the, the deed has the same consequences as the seed But it was the Old Testament, not what Jesus is saying here. The Old Testament said, we look at the outward appearance, men look at the outward appearance, but God looks, what? At the heart. That's an Old Testament teaching, not a New Testament, uh, new revelation. And Jesus, as God, sees their heart, and he is calling out their, their externalistic, legalistic interpretation, where they thought they were pure. They actually thought they were good with these commands because of how they had defined it. But look at chapter 16, verse 4. He's again speaking to these Pharisees, who probably were technically, physically maybe not committed adultery with someone else's spouse. But he says to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Because they were asking for a sign, and he says, that's, that's evil and adulterous. That's what evil and adulterous people seek for. They're, they were demanding signs to believe. Just do signs and we'll believe in you. And he says to these religious leaders, who again were probably technically, sexually uh, pure in a physical sense, he's calling them an adulterous generation. I think he's saying you are spiritual adulterers to seek for a sign, to not be satisfied with, with me and my word is adultery. To, to say, I need more. I need miracles. Show me something from heaven and that will satisfy me to test the Lord and not trust the Lord, not love the Lord for who he is and, and what he says is evil and adulterous. And, and the sufficiency of Christ and his word can be tested by religious people, even today in churches who might never commit the physical, sexual sin, seeking signs and wonders above his love is a mark of the spiritually adulterous. 
And the only sign that these were going to receive is the, the same sign that we have, the sign of Jonah. That's a resurrection after three days. That's the, that's the miracle, and that is enough to save those who Jesus seeks. But to not be satisfied with his love, to seek more outside of him is adulterous. Do you realize that when we seek affection outside of, of Christ and satisfaction apart from him, that is adultery and it's idolatry. And so even you think of seeker-driven churches seeking signs of bigger and better instead of the pure gospel that offends and often thins the crowd. That, you know, just God loves you, but let's also seek signs of the world's favor. We can do that in other ways too. John 12, 43 is a convicting statement of Jesus. It says, they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. And that can hit all of us. That can hit me. I have to ask myself, am I really at times wanting the approval of men more than the approval of God? I've been guilty of that. Listen to James 4, 3. To Christians, you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? To be intimate friends with the world is spiritually adulterous. I don't think we often think of it in that terms, but he's calling them out as, as adulterous, wanting to be friends with the world and, and just being all about what they want, even in how they pray. I think this is what John in 1 John 2 is talking about when he says, do not love the world or the things of the world. Don't put your agape love, your affection and, and your attention to the things of, of this world. Because there's, it's spiritual uh, adultery to, to pledge exclusive love to the Lord, but then love the world as a side relationship. Boy, we can all be guilty of that. Al Mohler points out the Ten Commandments also say God is a jealous God, allowing no rival loves before him or beside him. He says this, quote, God will not share Israel with other gods. God will not share our affections and our allegiance for the church to abandon its first love, that's his love for Christ as his beloved, to forsake her bridegroom. That the church plays the harlot in theology, looking for revelation outside the biblical revelation because she refuses to find satisfaction with what the scripture teaches. The church plays the harlot by selling out to priorities that are not godly and biblical. And, and this becomes a, a dominant theme through the prophets of adultery spiritually aimed at God's covenant people. And when you understand those warnings, we have all been spiritually unfaithful at times in our affections, in our allegiance. And Paul says to the Corinthian church, as a bride, 2 Corinthians 11, 2, that they are to be a pure virgin to Christ, but I am afraid, Paul says, that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray, listen to this, you'll be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. This is not just about physical purity, this is a call to spiritual purity in our thought life, our thoughts of Christ, do we have an unadulterated love for him? These are searching questions and convicting to me. 
Because even as I can spend many hours in God's word, I have to ask myself, am I loving it? Did I really mean what I sang earlier, that I love you more than any other, more than anything? I have to confess I fall short. So let's go to Matthew 5. But we need to ask ourselves, are you spiritually pure in your devotion to Christ? Is there anything in in your life that leads you astray or away from pure devotion to him? We need to deal with that. We need to not love the world. There's ways you can have an affair with the world. We can all be spiritually adulterous. But as the bride of Christ, we're called in the last book of the Bible to return to our first love. We sang, my soul longs after thee. You alone are my heart's desire, and I long to worship thee. You know, if you realize when you're singing things like that, I I don't do that enough. Pray even while you're singing that, Lord, make this true of me, that you would be my heart's desire. Test my thoughts and my attitudes in the radiance of your purity. Matthew 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. There's a blessing. When our hearts are made pure by faith, but there's an implication here that impurity can prevent us from seeing God or can can even cloud a a true believer from from seeing God. It's, It's been said of the Bible, this book will keep you from sin, but sin will keep you from this book. When there's... When we're in God's word, that helps us not to give in to sin. But when we're giving in to sin, our our hearts are less inclined to be looking to the Lord and his word. But we need to do that. And the more you see the Lord, the more you seek satisfaction in the Lord. I think from this verse here, the more unsatisfying impurity will be. And I found that in my own life. The more I pursued my relationship with the Lord and his glory and and great doctrines and truths and, and good books, the, the more the things of this world grew dim in the light of his glory and grace. But this is an ongoing thing. We need to keep doing this. Because our hearts, my heart, can be led back. But First John 3 says, Look to his coming, where we will see him as he is. And it says this, Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself. When you long to see Jesus, that's a hope that purifies you. When you're hoping to see him soon, maybe even any moment, that that makes you want to be, whenever that moment comes that you don't know, like a thief in the night, you want to be living for him. You want to be living pure in this present age. That's what our eschatology could do for us, should do for us, Peter says, that we would live holy, pure lives, longing for his coming it purifies us, First John 3 says. But also pray. We need to pray. Psalm 51, create in me a pure heart or a clean heart. Renew a steadfast spirit in me. We need to pray that. I've probably prayed that thousands of times, but we need to keep praying it. Create in me a pure heart. Second Timothy 2, 22, flee. Flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. 
What are you running from? Is I think that passage would put before us. Flee youthful lust. Are you running from those? And then what are you running to? Because you can't just try to r- avoid sin. You've got to run to righteousness, faith, love. And then who are you running with? It says you need to do that with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. This is so important. That we be accountable to and around those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, that we call out to God for a pure heart, that we run to his word instead of run to the world, and that we run with others who are running after purity. And and there's many in this room who have run more laps in the race than you. You can learn from, not just with your peers. You can learn from veteran runners and run from whatever would cause temptation or, or sin Youthful lust, in particular, flee for your life. The, the language is, it's the word we get fugitive from. Flee like a fugitive. Like the U.S. Marshals coming after you and you're a fugitive running through the forest doing whatever it takes to get away from that sin. Run like Joseph from Potiphar's wife. Remember Joseph, he's all alone. He says, how can I do this sin and sin against God? And then the temptation kept coming and she was had a hold of his cloak and he literally ran out of there. He ran and fled. Flee. Youthful lust. Lust is serious. Lust is not in the gospel's grounds for divorce. There wasn't death in the law either for, for lust, but it is deadly to hearts and souls. And so this is where Jesus goes in verse 27 of Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And I think what he means here is not just in the law of Moses, but you've heard a narrow interpretation as the act of extramarital intercourse. But I say to you, verse 28, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body will be thrown into hell. Now, don't miss this. Jesus is not changing the law. He is challenging the law that the teachers of that day had had missed. He's challenging what they missed in the law. And adultery was, was not just about the physical. There was visual coveting that was in the law, also in the Ten Commandments. And Jesus is also clarifying here that this is not just for married people. Heart immorality or adultery is anyone looking with lust, whether they're married or not. He doesn't say it's looking at someone's spouse or if you're a married man. And he's, so he's clarifying and he's also amplifying the consequences beyond legal penalties to eternal punishment He's saying very clearly, lust can send you to hell. And if your right eye, says, think about this though, if you just plucked out your right eye, could you still lust? You've got a left eye, right? And so I, I think the, the point here is not that you need to grab your, your eye and pull it out of the socket, although it is a literal point that it would be better if you could just lose a part of your body and, and, go to, and not go to hell, that would be better, but... He's he's using the kind of language there to make this graphic point that even if you could pull out one of your eyes and and then you could still lust with the other eye, the the point is you need to radically deal with and be willing to do whatever it takes to destroy this sin from your life. Be willing to cut off all avenues. I think radical amputation would be a, 
a term some counselors use. It's a part of the repentance that saves. The person who's not going to hell is the, the one who is truly repented, is willing to do whatever it takes. But those who are unwilling to fight this sin, who remain unrepentant in this life, do face God's judgment in the next life. But there's forgiveness. If you pray, like the next chapter where Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our sins and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Just like we need our daily bread, we need to pray for God to forgive us daily and to help us to not be in temptation and to be delivered from evil. Kent Hughes says halfway measures will not do. There must be a severing, a gouging out of sin if there is to be victory. This must be decisive and complete, willing to endure pain in order to conquer sinful habits. It it hurts to tear out an eye. It, It hurts to give up something you love or have made so much a part of you. Romans 8.13 says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Here's how Timothy Brindle says it. Be militant and diligent when killing sin. By the Spirit, let's kill sin. Let's get violent with our sin. Take up your Bible and be sharp to amputate the idols in heart. Stay accountable and well-equipped. Surround your soul with fellowship. Flee youthful lusts. And he says, Jesus is patient. He gives grace when we're in need so we can overcome temptation. Let's live a life of repentance, running away from sin, because there is infinitely more pleasure in Christ. So give all your praise to him. And I think that's what Colossians 3 does too, just less poetically. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust. But but listen to what he says right before that. Colossians 3.1, set your hearts on things above, not on things of this earth. Set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. The King James Version says, set your affection on things above, but then mortify inordinate affection. See, in the law, adultery got you killed, but in the gospel, the sin of adultery can be killed in Christ John Owen wrote this, always be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And he also wrote in that book and in another book, we need the glory of of Christ. It's actually seeing Christ and his glory for who he is and how satisfying and powerful he is that is key. We need to lift our affections to the beautiful and glorious Savior who is altogether lovely and who is all satisfying and who has all power. For any sinner who comes to him, we need to set our thoughts on where Christ is. He's at the seat of power in the universe. And he is there at that throne of grace to give grace to anyone who comes. And he has power to do that because he conquered death and sin. Romans 13 quotes, you shall not commit adultery. And it goes on to that we need to behave properly, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. In regards to its lust, cut off all avenues. Don't provide a way. Stop feeding the flesh. The apostle says, if, if your phone or your job or technology or anything is causing you to sin, 
get help, get counsel for how you can cut off that part of your life. It can be accountability software. We have some, I think, flyers in, in the lobby. But, but you need to reach out before a fall. The best accountability is when you reach out to someone when you're struggling, when you know you're going to be tempted, and you ask for their help in prayer in advance. But there's a great book I would recommend by Heath Lambert. It's called Finally Free, Fighting for Purity with the Power of Grace. Lambert is the author, just the title, Finally Free, if you look for that. Fighting for Purity with the Power of the Gospel has been the best book I've come across here. But I love how the gospel doesn't just say, you shall not. Paul says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, because Jesus was tempted in every way, yet without sin. He knows temptation inside and out, and he can offer grace in any temptation so that you don't have to sin. Titus 2, 12 will be the last scripture I read. It says, The grace that appeared in Jesus teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. And then it talks about our, our glorious God and Savior whose doctrine is attractive, how he gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify us for himself as a people who are his very own. There is no sinful past he can't redeem or purify. There's no temptation in the future that he doesn't have grace or power for. The blood from Emmanuel's veins can wash away all of sin's guilty stains. Amen. And so let's come to communion as a means of grace. And remember in the cup, his blood for us. And the bread, his body given for us. Let's keep our bodies and our minds pure in him. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of your Son, the only perfect one who was never unfaithful spiritually or physically or mentally. And we thank you that he welcomes repentant sinners and he washes robes to be pure white. So we pray with him. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. And we say with the psalmist, how can a young man keep his way pure? By by keeping it according to your word. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. So Lord, I want to pray for spiritual adulterers here who are not satisfied with Christ alone and are loving the world. Being close friends with it and for mental adulterers. Help them to get help and accountability and, and safeguards for purity and victory over sin. And I pray that no one here would commit physical adultery, that you would protect the lives and the families here to fear God and to love Christ. And for those who have sinned, we thank you for the blood of Jesus to wash away sin when we repent of it. We pray these things in his name. Amen.